Welcome to FRT, I'm Brad Carr, and today, to continue to mark the occasion of our century, this is episode 101 after all, we're going to return back to where we started with our first guest, Scotiabank Chief Risk Officer Daniel Moore. When Daniel first spoke with us on FRT, we were at the Risk Minds Americas conference in Boston. Daniel's also joined me previously on panels at the IIF annual membership meeting, the IIF Washington Policy Summit, and at the Risk Minds International Conference in Amsterdam. And across those discussions, we've talked about machine learning, quantum computing, and the future of risk management. Daniel, welcome back to FRT. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. Daniel, when we spoke on FRT a couple of years ago, you referred to personal resiliency in the context of managing through times of crisis and reflecting in that stage on the 2008 financial crisis. I think you just got back from a triathlon, so you had the physical exhaustion just as the work-related exhaustion was really getting started. How have you found it this time? with the pandemic? How have you found managing and performing through the time of COVID? And are there lessons from the 2008 experience that you found particularly useful and or new things that have really struck you this time? Yeah, thanks, Brad. Uh, I wasn't returning from a triathlon on a weekend in March when we all decided to go home. In fact, there's been no triathlons at all this year. Although I will say that the home gym in my basement has gotten particularly good use through the course of this year. But as I think back to that time in 2008, One of the phrases that we all took away was the idea to never let a crisis go to waste. And I don't think we let 2008 go to waste. In fact, I think 2008 helped us build some of the playbooks that we enacted with speed and then some through COVID-19. But I'll make a couple of observations and then a couple of lessons I think we relearned through the crisis. Firstly, I think we all know that risk management is at least equal parts art and science and risk managers are terrible artists, which means that we're so much better at drawing straight lines than we are at drawing curves. What I mean to say is when we look to our future, we tend to extrapolate from where we are today versus having a really robust and nonlinear forecast. In other words, the pendulum often swings far before we settle somewhere in the middle. We've seen that through our capital forecasts, our loss forecasts, And pleasantly, we're at a much better place today than I think we projected we would be at this point last year. Also, much has been made of the fact that this wasn't a bank-created crisis, like 2008 was, but rather one where banks were part of the solution. Banks acted, as we say, as a shock absorber, lending to customers and offering deferrals for the crisis. And that worked. That was a big part of the solution. And I think and I hope that how banks stepped up during the pandemic will very likely change how people think of banks for a long time because we were there for our customers when they needed us the most. Now, Brad, I did have, I think, three lessons that we learned or possibly relearned through the crisis. The first is that people matter. People matter a lot. So our communications with our customers and our employees were critical through the crisis. You know, we had about 80% of our global employees working remotely or working from home. and We had to reorganize those employees based on business criticality. We had branch staff going to collections. People allocated to our wealth business as trading volume spiked. But through it all, I think the important thing was to lead and communicate with empathy and with transparency, acknowledging that we didn't have all the answers all the time, being vulnerable enough to tell our employees that and to say that we were going to be working with them to come to the right answers and our customers the same message. Beyond people mattering, I also think we noted that tech resiliency matters. And those prior investments that we made, that industry made, enabled success. Collaboration tools like the one we're using today, Brad, VPN licenses, 
et cetera. These all enable the bank to run on a very mobile and very flexible basis for the benefit of its employees and the benefit of its customers. Being more digital as a bank allows the bank to be more agile. We're on laptops versus fixed desktops. Customers can enroll in deferral and loss mitigation structures and restructure their debt via digital. We saw 50% of our customers in our international banking footprint enroll for loss mitigation strategies through digital platforms, not through human interaction in a branch or a contact center. And then there's one final observation that we relearned, which is I think preparedness matters. In other words, planning matters more than the plan. We learned the importance of operational resilience, the importance of end-to-end -end process and robust scenario analysis. We did a really good job on financial risks, Brad, through the pandemic, but I think we learned a lot about operational risks as the pandemic proceeded. And one final observation I think that we need to learn again is that a learning from 2008 that we have not taken on board yet as an industry, we haven't assimilated, is that models like to behave badly. And I'm not talking about Naomi Campbell here. There is no static law-abiding physical system that scientists who have come into finance, like myself, are able to model here. There is only extrapolation from prior crises, extrapolation from the prices of other options or other financial instruments, et cetera. There are no models in finance, only extrapolations. And for that reason, human judgment will always be required to complement our advanced technology to understand our customers' needs, to understand our changing environment, and to execute the bank strategy. And that's true whether it's our new most complicated model, IFRS 9 or CECL, our new advanced analytics models, or any other model. We cannot forget that lesson. Models will behave badly. Well, Daniel, you've, you've teed up quite a number of the themes that I want to cover in the conversation here, and we'll return to the, the COVID uh, scenario perhaps at the end, because I'm, I'm keen to also get your forward-looking view of what, hopefully, the post-COVID world looks like. But just some of the things you've called out there, the, the point about people mattering, and it reminds me of a, a comment that Joseph Langerman from Standard Bank in South Africa made in our annual meeting last year, that he'd found the critical thing in the IT function was that the IT function suddenly had to have a much greater emphasis on, on empathy, on customer empathy, in a way that probably had not been critical for that function previously. So it's interesting to hear you also talking about that from a risk manager's point of view uh, and relating that same theme. But I think also your, your point about uh, non-financial risks, and I think this is a theme we've seen through the IAF's Chief Risk Officer Fora around the world as a theme, I think, for the last two or three years. That, uh, and we hear it a lot from regulators as well, that, that banks have become very good at managing the financial risks. But increasingly, those are not the risks that are perhaps threatening the institution or the ones that need the predominant focus. So I think you're relating very much how, how COVID has perhaps shone even a further light on that and a need for you know, deepening our competence around how we manage and how we look at non-financial risks. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. This whole focus, you know, or call it an evolution of operational risk to dealing with operational resiliency, I think is a critical mindset shift. And that's, that's pervasive in the organization now, whether it's audit functions or operational risk assessments. You know, we've learned that it's easy to have operational risks and many of us have had them. It's what happens when, what are your fallback systems? And so Looking at that is a mixture of process control and system analysis and people analysis. So having real active monitoring testing programs is important. Um, and real simulations where you can run live simulations with real people to watch processes run and sample those processes 
it's, you know, it's, it's like, as we say, putting water through the pipes, looking at processes from end to end for their true operational resilience. That's really critical. And that's a big learning. So in terms of how we bring together people and data, those models that you spoke of or extrapolations, when we spoke last time on FRT and also in some of those conference panels, you've spoken about your ambition and the journey of using technology to transform the culture of the risk function. And you'd framed it as transforming risk about making decisions informed by data rather than on the basis of some of the traditional orthodoxies that have often led decision-making in the past. Can you tell us a bit about how that journey has continued through the last couple of years? Yeah, we've continued over the last few years, Brad, making really significant investments in technology and analytics, two, two complementary sides of the same coin. And we've doubled down on the focus on customers and keeping the bank safe. Those are the two main themes that we've focused on. And then on the people side, we really work to become more agile and collaborative across the organization. But I, I would note there's, I think, two things that haven't changed that have become really critical to success. And that is the focus on being applied. In other words, things that actually go to market, not lab projects, and focusing on customer impact. That's how you get the business line engaged. That's how you create space in your budget for this to happen. And then get an organization excited about impact. It's important to note too that you've got to reskill the organization. These mindset shifts don't come overnight and they don't come by accident. It's got to be intentional. So in my risk function, we have over 200 data scientists and machine learning experts, lots of talent. But I think even more importantly than that 200 plus is that we've democratized the skill set through the bank. So in the course of the year, we've reskilled over 3,000 Scotiabank employees across the organization in AI and machine learning and data analytics, creating a digital first mindset in the organization, and that's changed culture. You know, we've also reached out to get outside in perspectives. So we've initiated and maintained a number of uh, academic relationships and academic partnerships. We have them here with the Vector Institute right here in Toronto. We've got them with MIT. We've got a, a very strong one going with Berkeley, which is focused on secure enclaves and homomorphic encryption. We can talk more about that later. Uh, we've got a great one with the University of Alberta on synthetic data sets, which is an important way to analyze data without it containing any reverse engineerable personal information. So that outside in perspective really helps us stay at the forefront. And so as a result of all that, I think we've seen tremendous velocity come about in our analytics journey. And we've been able to better, of course, support and segment our customers, which has yielded real tangible benefits through the pandemic. Definitely. And I want to dig a little further into machine learning in just a moment. And this is, I think, a technology where at the IAF, as we've looked across the, the global industry, as we've engaged in a lot of our surveys, we've seen a lot of the exciting stuff you're doing at Scotiabank and really seen you guys as being one of the, the foremost leaders with that technology. You talked there a little bit about the human side and, uh, and the empowerment and the collaboration. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a little further there, whether there are particular success stories perhaps that you could share about that human side of the transformation in enabling people to adapt the ways they work and, and perhaps how you ensure that people are, or encourage people to be willing to adopt new methods, which is often a challenge in itself. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, the tech innovations first and, and then some of the human impact after. So on the, on the tech front, thanks for that question, by the way. You, you've got me excited now, Brad, about some of the fun things we're doing, because I really think this is transformative for the customer and the bank. And what we've done is we tried to focus on pain points 
and for the customer and you know three main parts of the customer journey the attracting customers to the bank managing customers through their journey and supporting customers in time of need and one thing that i think is tremendously exciting is the ability to predict not react to customer outcomes here's an example we've got a technology we call sophia and here's what we're doing we're using liquidity projections on a customer's balance sheet where we have the operating account to triage customers need for those who are most in need before they get into trouble so we use machine learning techniques here to make short-term predictions and use those insights to tailor solutions for the client and provide assistance to those clients that need it the most. That means the bankers can get in front of the customers that need it, understand what's going on, and be proactive before problems happen. That's value to the customer, it's value to the bank. It's also an efficiency play, right? With annual reviews for those customers that are in the green zone, we don't need to deploy resources there. And that translates into revenue gain as we can redeploy those resources as well. Ultimately, we can turn our minds from efficiency and risk mitigation into revenue generation. And that's what we're doing now. So for those customers in the green zone that have high quality, predictable, recurring cash flows, we can provide better products and services to those and help them grow their businesses faster. So we're doing this in the commercial segment, but we think it's highly scalable across our footprint to small business, to retail, and across our international footprint as well. I wanted to, to talk a bit more about Sophia with you, because I think it's a, a great innovation. And it's actually one that at the IAF, we've recently launched our Spotlight on Inclusion series. And it's actually one that we'll be profiling very shortly, because I think it's, it's a tremendous example of where you're able to use that tool to uh, help support the most vulnerable customers. But also, I think, how, as you've articulated, how you're able to support uh, a much wider segment of the, the population and use it as a, a means of informing and understanding customer needs. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about, I, I guess, what prompted the development of Sophia in the first place, how and, and why you developed it. Because I, I can only imagine that the pandemic has made this all the more crucial. And you know, I think you've probably fast-tracked some of the, the rollout or adoption because of that. But it is actually something that you were already working on and thinking about pre-COVID as well, wasn't it? 100%, Brad. It, it came from the conviction that all the work we'd done in retail, and we talked before about the work that we've done in credit cards, et cetera. And retail is a great place to start because you've got literally tens of millions of customers to deal with. So it yields itself to machine learning and statistical techniques. We already use traditional statistical techniques. But the conviction that, you know, if you're dealing with 10 to the 8 customers, maybe it also works for 10 to the 5 customers, you know, tens of thousands of customers instead. And so can we scale that opportunity set into the commercial segment? And, you know, commercial accounts, they don't have access to capital markets and other forms of liquidity that big corporate investment-grade companies do. So it's much harder for them to bridge to and survive through short-term challenges. So it all comes down to cash flow. And again, the better you can understand your customer, the better you can help them. If it all comes down to cash flow, then it all comes down to better understanding that cash flow. So that's where we started. It was just that conviction that previous solutions were scalable and we, you need to address the most pressing need of that customer, the most important pain point of that customer in order to serve them better. So taking the SME segment as, as an example for a moment, and it's one that we'd noticed in our IIF machine learning surveys. In, in our first survey in, in early 2018, we found looking across the global industry, there was not a lot happening in machine learning for SMEs. There was a lot happening in the retail sector where banks obviously had a lot of, of homogenous data. 
there was a fair bit happening in the large corporate wholesale sectors where you had the adoption of natural language processing in being able to mine media sources and the like for monitoring deteriorating credits. There was not, not a lot happening in the SME segment. But we rolled that forward 18 months and late 2019, we did another survey and we found that actually now there was suddenly a lot happening in the SME sector mm. where banks were adopting the technology. Um, and we have seen other sources like the BIS that have often cited how much newcomers, some of the new tech firms have been using this uh, technology in the SME segment as well. We recently spoke with Professor Doug Arner of the Hong Kong University on episode 98 about the fact that it seemed that both the new players and the banks were both progressing, both using this technology more with SMEs. And Doug's take was that you had two different phenomena that happened at about the same time, that Ant Financial and Tencent suddenly got to the point where they had 10 years of SME data, and that gave them the mass to be able to use this technology in that space. But about the same time, the banks did a lot of the data cleansing that they needed to do that the history was that the banks had a lot of data that was relevant for the SME sector, but it wasn't in a homogenous way. It was stacked in different silos and triggered by things like BCBS 239 that the banks made a real consorted effort through the last decade in getting all the data into a single data lake enabled by cloud and the like, and that this had really helped to catalyze the use of this technology into the SME sector. Interested in your experience, where your bank, I think, has been one of the most advanced in this space, whether you know, that experience and that, that progress that Doug has described, whether that's common with how you see it? I agree with both of Doug's observations as important catalysts in that journey and that pivot. I also think there's a couple other dynamics at play, one of which is banks are always looking for new ways to grow. And that's particularly true today in a post-pandemic world where you know, some capital flows are challenged. And to be frank, we as a banking industry, haven't played very well in the SME segment. That's why the fintechs and the 10 cents and so on are all so interested in it, is because it is an underbanked segment. And underbanked means if we focus on it, it's got potential for the financial services industry to grow at multiples of the GDP growth. It is absolutely, of course, the you know, number one generator of employment in the economies that we, that we serve. So getting at that segment, I think, is important. It's been underbanked. Observation two would be, it's been hard to bank because you don't have data. You don't have big firm audited financial statements. If you get financial statements, they tend to be on delayed basis. You don't have public ratings. You, do, you, know, you don't have capital markets pricing and you don't have the law of large numbers in extremis that you have in the retail space, but you do have data. And so to your point, we've been cleaning that up, making that more available. But I think we've also focused on it. If I think about why our bank spent time focusing on it, we've spent so much time banking in the international segment where there is a large unbanked community. That's in Peru, Chile, Colombia, Mexico. Large portions of those populations are unbanked. And so we rely on non-traditional data. We can't use FICO scores, et cetera, to originate those customers. So that was very familiar to us to be able to use new forms of data like cash flow, bank that customer set to understand them better and to get at the answers. So I think our footprint also helped us get on the front foot on that, Brad. Yeah, it's an interesting point also that came up in the, the event that Professor Chris Brummer of Georgetown ran recently about some of the ethnic minorities in the US and how they had been underbanked similarly so and how in a lot of ways because they don't fit the, the mold necessarily of some of the traditional data metrics that we've relied on, 
that that has undermined their access to credit and that these new technologies, this new use of data presents us with an opportunity to break that mould and, and hopefully break out of that historical pattern. The LATAM experience for Scotia is crucial in giving you that awareness and that capability probably ahead of others. I wanted to pivot to something else that I think has been an evolution since, since you and I last talked, and that is how we've been able to use data techniques and analytics techniques in another part of the risk manager's mandate, which we hadn't really focused on when we talked last on the topic, which was in uh, anti-money laundering and AML. And it's been particularly of high yield in that space. And I think one of the, the reasons there is that AML is your classic needle in a haystack problem. So if you can teach a machine what a needle looks like, and more importantly, teach it what makes it look different from a piece of straw, then you can do these highly repetitive tasks much more efficiently with the machine than you can with a human or indeed with some simple rules that we devised in absence of that, that awareness. So here we focused initially on two particularly hard challenges, name screening and payment screening. And we've used NLP, natural language processing, to both detect true positives, that's an efficiency play, and reduce false positives, that's an effectiveness play ultimately reducing all the manual intervention that we needed with automated techniques. We've also brought in graph analysis, so context matters, and being able to understand context in the same way uh, a human would. And by doing that, we've been able to close about 90% of our generated name screening alerts analytically, and about the same level of effectiveness on payment screening as well. Tremendous yield, 90% auto reduction. Is, so that's tens of millions of reductions in terms of alerts that we have to process. And then applying that with, of course, the other evolution that we've had, robotics process automation, improves the speed and effectiveness of the whole thing and linking it to legacy systems. So that, that's a big challenge we've had as well that we've addressed is the ability to link these new systems to legacy systems to increase speed of execution. It's no good having a highly adaptive reinforcement learning methodology if it takes you one year to roll the new learned system into an old legacy process. So creating that uh, interstitial technology, so important. Could we go with the AML theme just for a moment? And, and I'd like to relate a couple of the use cases that I found really interesting in a, a prior survey we did. And perhaps if you could comment or add anything further that stands out for you as a particular use case. But one we heard was the ability to isolate, for instance, a, a petrol station or a gasoline station that had transactions going through it that just did not match the pattern of other gas stations in the area or of comparably sized small businesses in that, that location. Um, again, something to your point, I think that the machine can find that needle in the haystack so much quicker and free up the, the skilled analyst to be actually interrogating that rather than spending their time uh, digging around trying to find. And another case was about shipping routes and being able to identify where a particular ship took an odd route or had a stopover somewhere that just didn't fit the profile one would expect of where a ship allegedly carrying that particular commodity or those particular pallets should naturally go. That this has been the, the type of, of use case we've seen where technology has just helped to I guess, provide that first step and enable the skilled analysts to do what they do best. I liken it to a, uh, an example that I heard in a, a Washington Defence Forum once, that we used to have the analysts spending all day poring over the satellite photographs trying to work out, is this a missile? 
or what kind of missile is this? Uh, whereas now we've got the, the technology that does that three quarters of the work for them, frees them up to spend all of their time, not just the quarter, spend all of their time trying to work out, well, where did that missile com come from and where is it going to go tomorrow? And I think the efforts to combat financial crime are, are pretty common to that. But just interested in whether you know those are the sort of use cases that resonate with you or whether there's others that you could share with us? Yeah, 100%, Brad. You know, I think we all, we've talked about this before, that the effectiveness of the current methodologies and structure on AML really is not that high. By most estimates, we are able to freeze about 1% to 2% of financial assets that are involved in, in money laundering globally. That's not a high tax to pay if you're in the money laundering business. So we need to get better. And I think we've seen ourselves get better in those places, like you've indicated, where we have a bit more of a free hand to use all the intelligence available to us to make better decisions. And that's why I think we've made the best yield in public-private partnerships around AML, like the examples you cited, where we're able to data share effectively. And we've picked off two particular projects. One is on human trafficking and the other is on online child exploitation. Now, you know, I think people may not understand human trafficking is a huge business. It's estimated to bring in revenues of $150 billion a year, but its impact on people is so much more extreme. So estimated 20 to 30 million people per year trapped in slavery globally, and about 600, 800,000 people trafficked across borders globally. And the average cost of buying one of these trafficked people, slaves, about $90. So tremendous human suffering and cost as a result of this. And this all goes through financial structures, through banking capabilities. You know, it hits the most vulnerable. 70% of those people trafficked are females, and they're predominantly in the 12 to 25-year-old age bracket. So, you know, this is something I think we have an obligation to get on top of. We have two things going on. One is something called Project Shadow for us. And that's an intelligence-led approach to fighting financial crime. We've brought together law enforcement, government, public and private sectors working together uh, with the regulatory community. And we brought new ways of thinking using network analysis and graphical analysis techniques to think about how we can fight against this hugely damaging issue. The one piece of information that we have may not yield enough, but we put it together with information from other banks or from law enforcement, and we can start to tell things like your gas station analogy. You can look to businesses that traffickers use, and then you can look at other people that conduct business with that business in similar ways. Then you can build out a likelihood predictor. Then you look at other businesses that those perpetrators use, and you start to build out this whole network of likelihood. We've been able, by doing this on the human trafficking side, to target about 20 cases now, these are cases, not individuals, so that's groups of individuals, and promoted those to, to investigation. And I think the yield, for anybody that's involved in AML, this is an incredible yield. We're getting a 47% STR rate. That's 47% of generated cases result in a suspicious transaction report. And I think a very important part of that foundation is being able to deal with some of the privacy issues so we can share data better. And as I indicated with our academic partnerships, we're working very hard on techniques of homomorphic encryption, that's encrypting data through not only transit and rest, but also through calculation. 
and secure enclaves, that's secure computing environments that enable data sharing while protecting privacy to enable the whole industry to do a better job of stamping out money laundering. I think that the last point you make is a really crucial one across financial crime broadly. And we do see that some of the, the data transfer restrictions across borders, sometimes that we don't always get the, the feedback loop from law enforcement or the ability for different private sector firms to share information. Citibank's uh, Vice Chairman Jay Collins spoke with us last year about how, as he put it, the bad guys know exactly where all the blockages are, where we can't share information, and they're able to exploit all of that. He also made the point that the bad guys are very good at collaborating and sharing information mm -hmm. with each other, and, and that we similarly need to be so. So it's great to see what you've achieved. And I think that that rate you mentioned, that 47% rate, is something that I think would be the envy of many around the world. Hopefully we can do more and, and uh, help to close that gap because, as you say, the, the scale of trafficking is just horrific. It's great to see some good news in the, the progress in the fight. Could I change gears a little bit? And, and I, I do want to move on in a moment to, to talking about perhaps what comes next after COVID, what's after the pandemic. But one piece we skipped over a little bit was the, the usage you've done with machine learning in credit cards. Um, and I know this may be somewhat surpassed by some of the more exciting stories of what you've achieved since, but it is one that I wanted to check. Because when we were at, at Risk Minds in Amsterdam a few years back, we talked about how, how you've used machine learning to identify which credit card customers might have some issues or some challenges coming up with making their next payment, and how you'd use this as a basis for making some proactive outreach, helping those customers, offering them alternate arrangements, and that as a result, you've been able to actually not only help the customers, but also help the bank's bottom line, bringing your NPLs down by 10%. I think you made this point on a panel that, that we did together at Risk Minds in Amsterdam, and I liked it so much that I quoted it there a year later. But I wanted to, to perhaps hear the update and, and whether this is also a piece that's still a big focus for Scotia. It sure is. I mean, it's, it's a really important part of the customer journey, Brad. And, you know, as I said, that's part of our secret sauce is focusing on that customer journey. As you said, we started in about 2017 uh, in cards. Now here we are in 2021. We are currently developing deep learning neural net candidate models for credit cards. Whereas the original form that we talked about was something called a segmentation model. And that's something you could create segments and push them through the decision tree framework or rubric that is used for most credit adjudication and for retail. But moving towards deep learning neural net candidate models is a very different scoring methodology and, and it's, it's much more adaptable. So, you know, we can evolve the models now using reinforcement learning techniques. And, you know, you've probably seen those examples of the computer learning to pay, play a video game uh, through reinforcement learning. Uh, shockingly good. What it allows for is continuous adaptation of the model when circumstances change. Because as I said, there are no models in finance. There is no static homogeneous system that we're looking to replicate through mathematics. It changes all the time. It changed in the last year incredibly. So having the system adapt is really important. And so one of our important evolutions in our thinking since you and I talked was realizing that our legacy structures were a real impediment to speed of execution. We've got no shortage of talent. We talked about that. Uh, we've got no shortage of legacy structures either. But developing structures that can integrate and allow for speed of execution and speed to market were really critical. So we spent a lot of time developing something we call the digital risk engine. Nice name. What does it do? It takes away those decision tree methodologies. You don't have to put the square peg in the round hole anymore. Whereas implementation of a new model might have taken six months to a year through model validation and systems checks and technology and so on, 
customer behavior is happening all the time, we can now deploy in near real time. The digital risk engine is cloud-based. It allows for the use of alternative data sources to increase automation and credit decisions. It allows for real-time deployment using an API server into our legacy systems. That all results in a better experience for the employees, means we can deploy new strategies quickly. Uh, we're able to use real-time KPIs to monitor the performance of our portfolios. And we've got a real lift in the auto approval rates for our best customers. So that's a real example of how we've been able to change the structure of the bank to allow for those new technologies to be more effective and produce real lift. And I think that realization that sometimes you have to go sideways to go forward was important. You know, not only for cards origination, but we've done the same thing for collections, an important part of that life cycle as well. So we've used customer personas. We've deployed a reinforcement learning model here as well to determine the right type, channel, and timing of customer contact. So we're triaging our customers better. We're less intrusive, less bothersome to the customer and through the collections process. We're using text instead of voice as an example. But that better customer experience actually leads to better effectiveness and a better experience for the bank as well. We've uh, we've spoken recently with your colleague, Sean Rose, the Chief Digital Officer, and he's engaged a lot in the, the work that we've done with Deloitte on the, the Realising the Digital Promise series. And he talks, uh, I think, in very similar terms. And uh, he, he talks a bit about the the soil from which things can grow and and thinking of the technology legacy and how you engage with it in uh, in that way. I was wondering, Daniel, perhaps to, to conclude, if we could talk just a little bit about the pandemic and, and what comes next. And perhaps firstly, in terms of the effects that might endure from the pandemic. Um, we've seen, I think, this rapid acceleration in customers' adoption of digital channels. Um, I think it's raised the bar in terms of what they expect of their bank as they've had experiences in entertainment with live streaming, with video conferencing technology and the, and the like. Are there particular trends or innovations at the customer interface that have most stood out for you and which uh, perhaps present some issues or challenges or opportunities that you're focused on? Well, let me start with the digital. You're absolutely right. The huge uptake, you know, I can tell by watching these white panel vans go up and down my street in front of me here, Brad, that Amazon is apparently a, a thing now. And I see it on my credit card bills as well. We're no exception. We've had digital users up about 20% this last year. Digital sales are now about 40% of our overall retail sales. And perhaps most significantly, self-serve digital transactions are about 90% of all bank transactions. So banking has shifted to digital and that's irreversible. But you know that means that we have new ways that we can provide advice, new ways we can engage with the customers, uh, new ways to go to market with product. That's all very exciting for us as well. You know, as an example of that, through COVID, obviously, we were very active in loss mitigation strategies with our customers. 50% of those in our international banking segment were taken up through the digital channel, not in branches, not in contact centers, on the digital platform. That's pretty cool. And that's not going back inside the bottle. It, of course, you know, it raised the bar on cyber risk and IT risk, and that's a whole other topic that we could spend lots of time talking about, and we're very focused on that. It also, as you indicated, because we are having this conversation here today digitally, means we open questions about what does return to office look like? How many days per week? Is it assigned? Is it not assigned? Is it hybrid, et cetera? And that'll be a big challenge for our industry, for all industry to figure that out. And I can't tell you we know all the answers. I can tell you that we're working on it. And I can tell you, like I said, we're gonna communicate because 
People matter, as I said in the beginning, but we're going to learn as we go through this thing, uh, what works best and how people work best. Is it different for a small conversation, two or three people versus a big group conversation and how best to do that? And there'll be some operational challenges. There'll be some people challenges through that. We're going to do our best to communicate, be empathetic and try to get it right. I think those are the sort of the short-term challenges and opportunities, Brad. I think undoubtedly there are longer-term ones as well that we're all talking about. We're all talking about interest rate trajectory, inflation trajectory. No one knows the answer. Lots of opinions. That's going to be a big one. Climate change, you know, it, that's gone from being something on the radar to being top right on the on the heat map in a very short period of time. And you know, there's an acknowledgement that getting this wrong could be a far greater risk than any other risk that we manage. So I think there's a lot of time and attention being paid to that. I think that's, an, that's a COVID impact. People have had time to reflect as they've been on, at home. It's also a COVID opportunity, right? Because by most estimates, over $2 trillion a year of investment is going to be required to get to 1.5C. So there's a business model pivot that goes with that. There's business model pivot that can go with digital and other changes that we've had in our society. We cannot talk, you know, stop talking about the impact of fintechs and big techs and others. That's all part of the ecosystem of financial services now. Shift to digital makes that even more viable. And as a banking industry, I think we need to be on the front foot of defending our value added to society that we've established over centuries and I think is still a fundamental part of the banking value proposition. Credit's not going away, Brad. We, you know, it's a financial risk. Uh, we've dealt with it since inception, and we're still dealing with it, and it's not gone away. There are still long-term economic impacts, particularly in certain sectors that we'll have from the pandemic, absolutely. But, you know, I'm basically optimistic as we look forward from here, as optimistic as a risk manager can be, Brad. We're seeing improving economic growth across our whole footprint across Canada, across the U.S. We're seeing it being lifted by Asia, being lifted by Europe, uh, and in Latin America and Central America, we're seeing the same thing. That growth, that tailwind, we'll see through a lot of the near-term challenges. We expect strong credit performance from here. I think the industry and the GDP is going to have strong growth on the back of that. And so I think we've got the worst behind us, and certainly there are blue skies ahead as we look through the challenges that we've had through this last year and the learnings that we take away from it. Yeah, some blue skies ahead, um, but at the same time with the challenge of whether or not we can sufficiently heed the lessons and adapt ourselves in the, in the role that we, we play in that. Daniel, it's been great to have you back on FRT, and I think we've covered a lot of ground across a range of topics once again. Great to see the continued progress and the evolution at Scotia since we last spoke. I'm going to try to highlight a couple of key points that I think most resonated in our discussion. I don't know how good a job I'll do here. But I think it was important that you started with the, the fact that banks are part of the solution this time. And I like the three big things that matter that you called out, that people matter, that, that staff, the, the way that we lead and communicate with empathy, also, I guess, how we engage with customers and other stakeholders, that tech resiliency matters. Uh, and as you've highlighted a couple of times, I think just the levels at which customers not only can enroll, but have actually been doing so via digital channels. And that preparedness matters. Uh, I like your phrase that planning often matters more than the plan. I guess the battle plan never survives first contact, but there's such value in, in learnings in, uh, in having actually gone through that process nonetheless. And you, you made the, the connection from that to the, uh, the focus on non-financial risks. I think the, the point you made about being focused on the collaborative nature with people across the organisation, focus on customer impact, 
Again, it's a point we heard a lot in the, the IF Deloitte Realising the Digital Promise series, as we spoke with chief digital officers, chief transformation officers around the world, the criticality of being customer centric and having that at the forefront of your transformation agenda was one they spoke a lot about also. Really interesting, the point you made about on staffing was the the adoption of, of the technology and the upskilling, having over 200 machine learning and data scientists, but the level of reskilling staff across the bank and the opportunities you've made available for staff and how that's been in a, a, a form of democratizing the technology across the bank. Focusing on the pain points for the customer, uh, managing managing customers through the journey, supporting them in their time of need, and the the value of Sophia as one really key tool uh, in the way that you're able to to use that in predicting. Also, when we talked about the SME segment and the learnings that you're able to articulate that Scotia had from its its extensive LATAM footprint, and that dealing in some of those other markets where a lot of the traditional data sources are not not available or at least are, are not as rich. Uh, and not as accessible for big chunks of the population uh, and how that's been, I, I suspect, not only a direct learning, but also a source of confidence for the bank that you have been able to make it work in those markets, in those other uh, data environments and something that uh, you're able to then apply elsewhere in, in other markets. And, and I think I might just conclude by, by highlighting and underlining the point you made about anti-money laundering. And I think the the nature of human trafficking is horrific in itself. The scale that you described it at is all the more horrific. It's great to see a, a positive news story, a positive impact in the, the face of that. You know, we are conscious that I think Interpol and Europol have each said that the financial industry typically interdicts between 1% and 2% of, of flows. At the same time, the top 10 US banks spend more on anti-money laundering than the FBI's total operating budget. The top five UK banks spend more on AML than the UK spends on prisons. So it has been traditionally a, a horrible return on investment uh, and one where we have a long way to go. The use of new technologies in the way that you've described and making some serious inroads in this space, the uh, the 20 cases, the 20 groups that you mentioned, and the impacts in in name screening and payment screening and the work of Project Shadow is, is great to see. And, and I hope it progresses and I hope that we can enhance the information sharing and, and have more of it across the, the industry more broadly. So Daniel, a lot we've covered, a lot of exciting things, a lot of uh, really impressive work being done at Scotia. Thanks for joining us again on FRT. Always my pleasure, Brad. Great to see you and great to talk to you. And looking ahead on FRT, as we embark further into our second century, I want to highlight a couple of our other upcoming guests. Uh, my colleague Mina Lodge is going to speak with Chad Harper of Visa and Amin Carey of CIB Egypt on that new Spotlight on Inclusion series. Uh, we mentioned some of the work that Scotia's been doing with Sophia, and uh, and we're also highlighting that in the series. But Mina's going to talk with Visa and CIB Egypt on a couple of the other uh, really exciting initiatives as well. And uh, and my colleague Natalia Bailey will also examine our new IIF Data Ethics Charter, which I have to say Scotia was one of the really significant contributors amongst 26 firms in developing that. Uh, Natalia's going to speak about that with Jade Haar of National Australia Bank and David Hardoon of the Union Bank of the Philippines. And I'm going to pick up the RegTech discussion with Chris Steele of KPMG in London. So please stay safe, join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr and thanks for listening on FRT.